Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Drabblecast Live Story Slam. Thank you for coming. Please feel free to make yourself comfortable. Uh, oh, thanks. It's a little delayed. Drabblecast, as some of you may or may not know, is a uh, short fiction audio podcast. Uh, short stories each week. I'm the host, Norm Sherman. I'm the editor. We've been cranking out uh, fun and weird stories like the stuff you're going to hear tonight for about eight years now. Uh, If you don't know what a podcast is, don't worry. Einstein, uh, Ben Franklin, Copernicus, a lot of really smart people didn't know what one was either. It's basically a uh, digital medium, usually consisting of audio or video or PDFs or EPUBs or whatnot, that uh, subscribers like yourselves uh, use to download content uh, to your computers or your mobile devices. And uh, this is our first ever live Drabblecast recording, so we were testing the waters and excited about this opportunity here. I should mention that, uh, that we are recording this. This will be aired on uh, our website, thedrabblecast.org. Uh, it is our April Fool's episode. It's a beautiful holiday. You never know what's real or what's fake on April Fool's Day. Uh, we're going to start things off here with a couple stories that take a close look at ourselves and uh, the way that we see the world. You know, each of us looks at the world with our own unique set of Rose or Blanche or even Dorothy colored lenses, <laughs> our own particular set of binoculars that we see and view uh, each other and the way that we interact. Uh, and the thing about binoculars is they, they're fine when you're pointing at something. You can see your neighbor's beautiful breasts perfect, but the things close by in the peripheral vision become more and more blurry to the point that you don't know what's around you. So in that light, we're going to bring you uh, three stories. My Hero, The Fisherman by Jack Handy, The Tunnel by Ben Lurie, uh, and also a story called The Something by John Grisham by B.J. Novak. Uh, Jack Handy, best known for his serialistic uh, one-liner jokes known as Deep Thoughts. You guys are probably familiar with those. And his fuzzy memories, which are always my favorite on SNL. Uh, Handy's appeared often in The New Yorker in uh, the Shouts and Murmurs section from where this story first appeared in 1987. Ben Laurie lives in uh, Los Angeles in a house on top of a hill. His fables and tales have appeared online and in print in journals and magazines of all shapes and sizes, including The New Yorker, uh, Selected Shorts, and This American Life. His short story book, Stories for Nighttime and Some of the Day, is now in its fourth printing, and this story comes from that collection. And B.J. Novak, most commonly known as that guy from The Office, probably, producer and actor from Newton, Massachusetts. He just released his first book of short stories, and they're called uh, One More Thing, Stories and Other Stories. And since we're going to do all three uninterrupted, I want to take this opportunity to thank EMP for hosting us here and to, uh, yes, to thank and recognize our other two fabulous readers here, Ken Jordan and uh, Carly Bales, who's somewhere. Um, and thank you guys for coming out here. That's, uh, it's been wonderful to have you, and this has been a fun experimental thing for us to do. So. so without further ado, My Hero, The Fisherman by Jack Handy, The Tunnel by Ben Lurie, and The Something by John Grisham by B.J. Novak. My Hero, A Fish Story. By Jack Handy. The greatest fly fisherman I ever knew was a big bear of a man. When he stood up straight, he was well over six feet tall. He had powerful, hairy arms and massive hair covered legs. His body was also covered in hair. 
And for some reason, he kept his fingernails and toenails long and sharp. He didn't need a lot of fancy equipment to catch fish. In fact, most of the time, he didn't even use a rod and reel. He'd just wade out there in the river, reach down, and catch a fish with his bare hands. Sometimes he'd just stick his head underwater and catch one with his teeth. He didn't believe in that highfalutin, politically correct catch and release. Whatever he caught, he ate. Usually right there, while it was still alive. Once I even saw him eat a muskrat. The only thing he liked better than fish was honey. He'd sniff out a beehive and tear it open with them big old long fingernails of his. Sometimes the bees would sting him and he'd let out a big old roar of pain. I'd usually start laughing and he'd charge over and swap me across the head, opening up my scalp. But it was all in good fun. Besides fish and honey and the occasional rodent, I think the only other thing I ever saw him eat was garbage. You know, it's funny how some can be so good at one thing like fly fishing and so terrible at another like driving a car. That's the way he was. Suffice it to say that whenever he got behind the wheel nine times out of ten, we'd end up rolled over in a ditch someplace on fire. He didn't say much. In fact, hardly anything. He'd puff and growl if he didn't like a story you were telling. You'd usually have to play dead until he calmed down a bit, but after another bowl of whiskey, he'd be ready for the rest. He seemed to follow his own set of rules. For instance, he never wore any clothes. And trust me, he didn't like you trying to put them on him either. Another one of his quirks was, well, he stank. He never bathed and his breath was terrible, even after you offered him a mint and he took the whole roll away and ate it. At least he'd defecate in the woods. Even worse, he had a drug problem. More than once, I saw him staggering around, disoriented, with a syringe stuck in his buttocks. The authorities would come and carry him away, usually in a net hanging from a helicopter, but a few days later, he'd be right back out there, raring to fish, and boy, could he fish. In fact, when other fishermen saw him coming, they'd usually run away screaming, because they knew they wouldn't be catching anything with him around. After the fishing season ended, he seemed to lose interest in just about everything else but sleeping. I think he'd sleep right through the winter if I let him. <laughs> which I finally learned to do after repeated skull bites. People ask, but what was the most important thing I learned about fishing from him? I guess it would be that you don't need to be a slave to matching the hatch. A lot of times you'd catch as many as fish by chasing them into a shallow water and pouncing on them, or by stealing them from other fishermen. The odd thing is, you know, I never knew his name. Some people would yell out, Grizz, when they saw him, but I don't think that was it. I tried calling him Lonnie once, but he didn't seem to like that either. When I think back on it, all I can do is scratch my head and then wince a little bit from the stitches in my scalp. But this spring, I discovered the most surprising thing of all. When I saw him again after the long off-season, with him were two of the cutest, hairiest little children I'd ever seen. And then it finally hit me. The greatest fly fisherman I ever knew wasn't a man at all. He was a woman.
Tunnel by Bin Lori. Two boys are walking home from school when one of them sees a drain pipe set in the woods. Look at that, the boy said. I never knew that was there. Let's go in and see where it goes. But the other boy takes one look at the pipe and quickly shakes his head. Uh-uh, he says, not me, no way. Why not, said the first boy. Are you scared? I just don't want to, said his friend, and takes a single step back. Come on, says the first boy, it's just a pipe. But the other boy won't be swayed. I'll see you later, he says. And then he turns around and runs. The first boy watches as his friend disappears, and then he turns again to the pipe. Its open mouth is very dark and very, very wide. The boy glances around as he moves towards it. He is all alone. When he gets to the opening, the boy peers inside, but he can't see anything in the dark. Scraggly vines spill over the edge and hang down to the leaf-strewn ground. The boy leans forward and yells into the pipe. He waits for the echo to come back. But nothing ever comes back, no sound at all, just silence. Although he waits and waits. The boy climbs up onto the lip of the pipe and kneels, facing into the dark. All right, he thinks, here we go, just keep crawling until you reach the end. The going is very slow at first. The boy has to be careful. The floor of the pipe is littered with rocks that gouge his hands and knees. But after some time, the debris seems to clear, and then the crawling gets easier. The boy crawls until the daylight diminishes to a pinpoint behind him and disappears. Now enveloped by the dark, the boy waits for his eyes to adjust. But this never happens, not even in the least, no matter how long he waits. Finally, he decides to give it up and crawls onward blind. He feels his way through the pipe with wary, outstretched hands. I'm just in a pipe, he keeps telling himself. I'm just in a pipe, that's all. There's no reason to be afraid. Eventually, I'll get to the end. But the thing is, the boy finds, the tunnel has no end. Or at least none he ever reaches. Instead, the tunnel closes in, bit by bit, slowly. It grows smaller, gradually, narrower, narrower, tighter. The boy can feel the roof pressing down, the sides squeezing in. His ribs contract, air hisses from his lungs. But still he fights to move on, to press ahead, to push through, until suddenly he realizes he couldn't turn around if he tried. The boy's flat on the ground now with the ceiling on his back. Filthy walls press his arms against his sides. He pants as he inches forward through some foul-smelling substance. He can hardly breathe. His head is starting to spin. And then the boy feels it. He feels the tunnel grab him from all around. It takes him. It holds him fast. The boy screams and squirms, but he's trapped, immobilized. There's no use. He can't move at all. And as he lies there in the dark, a single thought comes to him. The single thought fills his mind. He is going to die. And it is then, and only then, that the boy sees the door. The little door in the wall right before him. He reaches out and touches it, runs his hand over its surface. It's real, all right, not a dream. He slowly turns the knob. The door creaks open to reveal a quiet, peaceful room. Moonlight spills in through the window. There's a bed, a small bed with a figure lying in it. The figure stirs and looked up. It's the boy's friend who ran away. 
The boy watches as his friend in the bed shrinks back against the wall, and then he takes a step down from the pipe. He moves slowly, deliberately, trailing leaves and rocks and oily tracks, and a crooked smile cracks his face. Please don't scream, he says. But his friend in the bed doesn't obey. His mouth opens wide and he screams, ah! So the boy reaches out with one gnarled, twisted claw. Together, the two boys reach the end. The Something by John Grisham by B.J. Novak. John Grisham woke up shortly after sunrise in his large, light-filled house outside Charlottesville, Virginia. He put on a pot of coffee for his beautiful wife, picked up the fresh, crisp newspaper from his driveway. He was still a print guy. Print had been good to him. And flipped peacefully through the front section as he did every morning until he found something that nearly made him choke on his locally baked bread. Congratulations to author John Grisham, declared the full-page ad, which featured a smiling, handsome picture of his face from ten years ago, whose new thriller, The Something, debuted this week at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations from everyone here at Random House Publishing. Then, in small letters, check out The Something and other John Grisham bestsellers at randomhouse.com. Nothing happened for a minute. Birds chirped. John Grisham picked up the phone. Dale, John Grisham, call me back. Call me back ASAP, thanks. Looking forward to your call. This is John Grisham. Then a minute later, he texted to the same number. Call me, 911, JG. A minute later, his phone rang. Hey, Dale. Dale was John Grisham's new editor. Art was still his editor officially, but he had handed off most of his day-to-day -day duties to this new guy, Dale, seven months ago, and so far there had been no problems. But so far only goes so far, as the protagonist of his latest book liked to say. So far only goes so far. First things first, congratulations, said Dale. If Dale was at all surprised that John Grisham was calling him and texting 911 to a cell phone at 5.55 a.m., he did a very good job hiding it. Can we pause to appreciate this for a second? I know this is par for the course for you, but number one for the something in its debut week. I hope you give yourself a second to really... Where did you send the galleys? asked John Grisham. For you to proofread? Uh, we sent them to your farm in Mississippi on, let me check, August 4th. Does that sound right? You always spend July and August on the farm, correct? Not this August. I was here in Virginia. Ah, my, my apologies. Right, the weather. That make, yeah. Well, we didn't hear back from you for a couple of weeks, and word around here is you never really weigh out on the galleys anyway, right? I mean, that's what everyone told me. So after a couple of weeks, we we're up against this holiday deadline. And hey, congratulations again, because obviously there could not be a better time to debut at number one than the Christmas season. I'm sorry, John. Obviously, I should have double-checked. I just didn't want to disturb you and like hound you, especially being the new guy here. And again, I was told you really never weigh in on the galleys. Is there anything you want to change? I can definitely see about changing it for the paperback or the title of the book is not the something. <laughs> there was a long silence. What? The title of my book is not the something, said John Grisham. I, 
am looking at this manuscript right now, sent in to you by us, dated July 2nd. The something by John Grisham. I just meant the something, said John Grisham. Careful to calibrate both his emphasis and his anger precisely, not letting either cloud the other. He then repeated what he had just said with every possible intonation, approaching it like the methodical defense attorney he once was, just so it would be entirely 100% clear to this person named Dale. The something. The something. The something. Do you get it, Dale? It was going to be the something. I was going to decide that later. Huh. Uh, Okay. I did. Okay. John Grisham could practically see the excess blank space between Dale's words. More typos, these ones over the phone. I gotta tell you, John, said Dale, finally starting again. I gotta say, people have actually really responded to the something. It feels deliberately ambiguous, you know? It's elegantly vague. It basically lets people project whatever... The book said to John Grisham, is about a civil rights attorney who was blackmailed by the El Salvadoran maid he risked his career for in order to sneak her children into the country. Okay? It is not meant to be elegantly vague. This is about right and wrong, about the limits of the law, about concrete legal issues and specific personal actions. A good title would have been, oh, I don't know, Dale off the top of my fucking head. The case, the betrayal, the immigrant's trial, the immigrants, the threat, the the letter, the lawyer's pen, the blackmail, just to name a few. Or, he said, trying to sneak this one in there, the one he really wanted but was a little shy to bring up, I thought so far only goes so far wouldn't be the stupidest title in the world if you wanted to go for something different. What would that refer to? Oh, like the something refers to anything, exploded John Grisham. The point is, look, forget so far only goes so far. It's stupid. It's pretentious. It's not what I do. Look, this isn't a ghost story, Dale, okay? This, no, no, this is about concrete issues of our time. Maybe better than anything I've written since the Pelican Brief. And thematically, it's about the unforeseeable consequences of the compromises we all make. In any case, the something is, on every level, a completely inappropriate title. Okay? Okay, Dale? Do you understand that now? How if you were to get any two words wrong in this book, these are two pretty fucking important ones? Yes, said Dale. Yes, I do. John Grisham exhaled, feeling his breath leave his body as he did, like his wife's yoga instructor had taught him to do that one time. He never went back to that yoga instructor, but he still thought about that session sometimes. I do want to say one very small thing, not to defend myself at all, but just to make you feel a little better while we sort this all out, said Dale. For what it's worth, the answer may be nothing. People have not mentioned the title once. Really, not once. Reviews have been good. You know, consider you're an extremely popular writer, and some reviewers are naturally going to hold that against you, but really, I read all of them. All of them. You, but I have not read one review that has brought this up. Okay, that's good, said John Grisham. Not one blog, nothing. For whatever reason, and I know it was a huge mistake on my end, a monumental one that will probably, yeah, just for your own peace of mind, you should know that the reaction has been 100% okay so far. John Grisham said nothing. I'll tell everyone to hold off on the next printing immediately until you've had a chance to figure out what you want to do here. It'll be a big deal. First printing is a million, as I'm sure you know, but this is my fault, and literally nothing is more important to this company than you being happy here. Think about what you want to do, okay? Okay. Thank you, Dale.
And John? Yes? I'm sorry. John Grisham hung up the phone and looked out the window. The something? Were they fucking kidding him? And also, number one, again, not bad. Expected, but still, number one. He hadn't taken a moment to let himself enjoy that. He took another sip of coffee, and as he did, he quietly wished himself a tiny, formal congratulation. Congratulation? Congratulations? What was the singular? John Grisham wasn't sure. He didn't need to know. Guys like Dale were paid to know things like that. Although apparently guys like Dale were paid to do a lot of things they didn't do right. John Grisham took a sip of coffee as he thought about what to do. The coffee tasted good. After all these years, he finally knew how to get the proportions right. John Grisham walked over to his bookshelf. He pictured the hard new spine of a book called The Something on his shelf, right next to the other number one bestsellers he had written, like hard, humble trophies, right next to his favorite trophy, an actual trophy, the division championship trophy of the Little League team he had coached back when his kid was still a kid, and when people could hardly believe that a successful guy like John Grisham really did coach Little League, let alone was a really good coach, let alone was the coach of the division champions, the Reds. It looked okay on the shelf of his mind. The partner, the racketeer, the runaway jury, the something, the street lawyer. Not great, just okay. But okay. But only okay. But still okay. If he couldn't enjoy a morning like this, wondered John Grisham, if he couldn't appreciate learning about his own number one bestseller in a crisp, rolled-up newspaper delivered right to his front door, even now, deep into the internet age, if his book was number one yet again, and the reviews were actually perfectly kind, if he couldn't shrug this off and move on with his morning and have mercy on a perfectly decent guy like Dale who had made a mistake and felt terrible about it, then what was the point? What was it all for? On the other hand, how did John Grisham become John Grisham? By caring about every single detail, by never letting a single comma go unquestioned, calling an entire book the something by accident, what would the man in the photo in the ad from the morning's paper, the handsome, ambitious self of 10 years ago, still dressing up for photo shoots, still bringing it all after 20-odd bestsellers, what would he think of that? Manager, John Grisham suddenly remembered. That's what they were called, not coach. You coached Little League, but you called yourself a manager, just like in real baseball. Or at least John Grisham did, because he cared about things like that. Or did he just care because the kids cared? Did the kids care? And now that he thought about it, his official biography on the dust jacket always referred to him as a Little League coach, not a manager, and he had never thought to correct it. John Grisham ran his finger along the trophy and thought back to the championship season, and soon found himself thinking back to the day, years later, when he realized with more suddenness than sadness that he had to call Random House to have them take that part out of his bio because his son was in high school and hadn't played Little League in years, even though John Grisham still thought of himself all that time as a Little League coach, manager, Little League manager. It really has been a long time, thought John Grisham. Now he heard the clock tick. Were some ticks louder than others? How could you sometimes hear a clock tick? Shouldn't it be always or never? Why sometimes? 
John Grisham decided to let that one slide, but just this once. He thought of his life and smiled and stopped. It had been a pretty nice day so far, thought John Grisham, but so far only goes so far. Thank you all for coming out. We'll see you next time, all right?